Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring to you another release from our audio archive series. The following recording is Martin Fido appearing on BBC Radio Cornwall on the 11th of November 1993. Being a native of Cornwall, this interview is more personal than what you might expect from the usual author interview, as Martin describes his early life and schooling growing up in Cornwall and goes on to discuss his academic career, as well as his research in true crime and the Jack the Ripper suspect, Kosminski. He also treats the listeners of this program to a playlist of his favorite musical compositions that have relevance to different periods in his life. All of us in the Ripperology community were deeply saddened by Martin's death earlier this year, and I believe this recording is a little tribute of sorts to Martin, as it gives you a peek into a more personal side of him you might not have been exposed to. So without further ado, here's Martin Fido on BBC Radio Cornwall in Wonderful land, as Cornwall is, of course, at quarter past ten. Good morning, it's the mid-morning programme from BBC Radio Cornwall. My special guest today still lives, you know, in the house where he was brought up as a baby. It's at Haymoor near Penzance, but he's a man with anything but a parochial lifestyle or outlook after schooling in Cornwall and uh, a touch of schooling in the USA later on, I see. He went up to Oxford to achieve a first in English language and literature, became a fellow and lecturer, but left academia ten years ago and broadcaster. Just lately he's been in great demand due to his book about Jack the Ripper, the infamous 19th century murderer, yes. It, it comes up with a brand new identity for the brutal killer of five East End prostitutes back in 1888. But this fascinating facet of criminology is only one of the many explored in various books by the author who's with me today. He's also just brought out, I see, The Chronicle of Crime, and that's a heavy tome. There it is. It lists the infamous felons of modern history and their hideous crimes. Murder, forgery, arson, terrorism, and treason. It's all in there. We'll give one away a little bit later, too. My guest is Martin Fido. Martin, welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Can I start near the present day and ask, how could so many writers over so many years be so wrong about the identity of Jack the Ripper? Well, they go on being wrong all the time. Uh... The mystery excited people. The newspapers at the time made wild guesses, and people got wilder and wilder, especially, of course, after in 1970, Dr. Thomas Stowell printed the suggestion that he was royal. That's made him a real international celebrity. A quarter of a million people every year go to the East End to look at those murder sites. I heard a Saturday night theatre last Saturday, which uh, hinted at a new angle on that. Oh, I missed that. Oh, you did? Uh, Well, that was a very interesting one, too. But I'm wondering, you know, Martin, why Jack the Ripper obsesses us so a hundred years on? Well, the name. Donald Rumbelow pointed this out. What a marvellous name, Jack the Ripper. And who was he? That's very important. The fact that the police never announced who they thought he was, 
and in fact there were only a few men at the top who had really serious ideas about it. Oddly enough, we've now discovered that three of them had three different ideas. Uh, Dr. Anderson, who was in charge of the case, believed it was a poor Polish immigrant, and this still seems to me far and away the highest probability, somebody from the district who was just mad. But we also know that, we've known for a long time, that Melville McNaughton, who joined the police a little bit after the case was over, believed it was a barrister and teacher called Montague John Druitt. There appears to be no obvious reason why he should have thought this, except that Druitt killed himself shortly after the murders stopped. And we have a new, very exciting document known as the Little Child Letter. And uh, Chief Inspector Little Child, the head of what was then Special Branch, wrote to a journalist called G.R. Sims in 1913 of a completely different suspect who they had a big dossier on at that time, uh, an American who escaped to America, and they were unable to trace him when they followed him out there. And we're beginning to research this man, and that's very top secret. The owner of the document has let me see it, but until he has sold the publishing rights, I'm not allowed to tell you who this new suspect is. There's more to follow, then. There's more to follow, but this is historical. I'm afraid all the stuff you hear about the Freemasons, the Royals, Sir William Gull, that is sheer fiction. Why was it that a police officer who named or described a principal suspect wrongly, why was it that uh, that, that happened, do you think? He'd been much involved in the case, hadn't he? Well, McNaughton uh, gave a wrong description. He wasn't actually involved in the case. He joined the force six months later. He talked to people about it. He was a bit gossipy. The rest of them were very tight-lipped. And I don't think they told him everything. In fact, we're sure they didn't, because he left these notes. And they contain errors. Police methods at that time must have been very primitive, too. Police methods did not have fingerprinting, of course, and they did not have the computer, which is the vital thing in this sort of crime. The sadistic serial murderer used to be very, very difficult for the police to catch because he hits strangers to him. If you or I kill our wives, they will ask us first if we can think who did it and see if we look guilty. But if we go out and just kill women we don't know on the streets, how are we to be connected with them? In Jack the Ripper's case, these women were all prostitutes. They would pick up half a dozen strange men every night. Very difficult to work on. What you have to do, what the police have to do, is question everyone in the area. Blanket interviews, house to house, keep all the notes and see everything suspicious that's been observed. Now, this used to lead to problems. Uh, the police are criticised for not catching Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, earlier. They'd interviewed him nine times. Yeah, well, one of those times, he was one of three million people who happened to own cars with the right sort of axle base. If you come much closer to the brand-new five-pound note, they knew must have come out of somebody's wage packet. He was one of an initial 3,000 people who might have received that. Yes, they'd interviewed him. Without a computer, they couldn't spot that he'd shown up in these different areas of investigation. Now, the computer comes in, and serial murderers in England are usually caught when they're two to three victims down. America, it's much harder. They can't get all the information for the whole country onto one database. So, going back to Jack the Ripper's day, huge numbers of coppers must have been involved in the investigation. Indeed they were. Almost every copper in London got swept in to do some extra patrolling, and they just covered those streets, and the prostitutes complained it was harder and harder for them to do their job because the, the, the police kept frightening the punters off. 
When did you when did you begin your research into this? On Jack the Ripper, I began research in 1985. I did about two weeks' work on it there as preliminary to doing what would have been just a general survey book, not investigating the case seriously. But in the course of that, I realized that Dr. Anderson, the head of the CID, had said that he knew who the Ripper was, and I realized that Dr. Anderson was in a very good position to say and he was likely to be right. I could also see that his Polish Jew was likely to be Melville McNaughton's Kosminski. So I was going to end that general survey book saying, if you want to find Jack the Ripper, search the uh, asylum records of the period if they've survived, and you should find there a Jewish patient called Kosminski who will be a more plausible suspect than any that's been suggested. Weidenfeld and Nicholson's took the book and said, don't do it the way you were doing it, go and find him. So that meant I had a year's tremendous research going through the asylum records, the workhouse infirmary records, the returns of pauper lunatics from all the London boards of guardians, and finally came up with both Kosminski and another name of the man I believed he had been confused with who really was the Ripper. And as soon as I published the book, out emerged uh, the other important document of the last 10 years, the memorand the marginalia compiled by Chief Inspector Swanson, who was deputy on the case, and indeed he'd got the two men mixed up. Let's stop there. Let's have your first piece of music. What My is it, Mark? First piece of music carries me back to the 1950s when there was a small magical group in Penzance that my mother sang with. It was run by John and Gwendolyn Lyle from Chyan Hall. And in addition to madrigals, we would sing Finzy part songs and this very beautiful anthem by Thomas Tompkins when David heard that Absalom was dead.
Music by Thomas Tompkins. When David heard. Choice of crime historian Martin Fido, my special guest this morning. Brought up in Cornwall, of course, Martin. Born in Cornwall. Cornishman. Well, yes. <laughs> and that was uh, down at um, Himor? Well, I was born in Penzance. We were living on the edge of Penzance, but I was a noisy baby. And we had a very noisy dog. So before I was one year old, my parents moved out to a more separate house in Haymore where I would not wake so many people up. And that worked, did it? <laughs> Apparently it worked. <laughs> you went to school where? Well, I started in the kindergarten at St. Clair's in Penzance, taught by Mrs. Stenson Stenson. Many will remember her, I'm sure. I remember her very well indeed. I remember her husband, the vicar of Marazion, and being taken out to the Mount when he was... Uh, uh, well, he was, of course, the, the vicar of Marazion, his chaplain at the Mount, had tea with uh, Lord St. Levin, not the present one, as a small boy. And then from there went to the Scudgeck School ah. in the great days when Arnold Hitchens ran that on a very tight rein, and a very fine school it was. But then the Butler Act was introduced late-ish in Cornwall, and the Scudgeck lost its junior infant section. And so I was moved up to Truro, went to Trelisk initially, uh, when Tom Stratton was headmaster, and then finished my schooling up high on the hill up uh, there. Truro School, yeah. Truro College is known then more, I think. I'm not that old, Chris. It had been Truro School for, I think, a good 20 years by the time I went there. Had it really? I, I yes. had contemporaries who were still calling it... Uh... Truro College, they like to say that, I think. Who was there then? Uh, well, the headmaster, of course, was Larry Creed. Uh, but more memorable was the deputy headmaster, Bert Wilday, who I think stepped off the ark as Noah touched down here and immediately took up office as deputy headmaster of Truro School. In fact, he did come very young in as deputy head. I gathered uh, when Dr. Magson was headmaster, he felt a big clean-up job was needed. Bert had been his most successful student at Westminster College and he was summoned from a few years' misery as an assistant master and from a humble usher became the great dominating figure of Truro School that he was when I went there. We've heard of him oft times. <laughs> Any highlights of your school career, would you say? Highlights? Well, they'd have liked to throw me out if they hadn't thought I'd get a good um, scholarship to some reasonable university, which would look good on their honours boards. I was a thoroughly bad boy, but I enjoyed academic work. I will not pretend like Winston Churchill that I hated classes. I enjoyed the work, and of course, I had the enormous good fortune to be taught English by Stephen Wicks. And then in the last year, Watson Weeks came in as well. Now, while Bert Wilde had been an English teacher, his great days as a classroom teacher were over. By my time, he went through the motions. But Stephen Wicks was one of the most inspiring teachers one could imagine. In what he, way did he inspire you? He made you want... He made you... He believed that it counted, that literature is reflecting how you live, that you really experience it. He taught me Wordsworth and Coleridge, a sort of very basic thing in the sixth form. I never had to do any more detailed work than what I'd learned from him to be able to go on and teach it at university, ultimately. 
basically what I knew about Wordsworth and Coleridge I'd learned from him and it was solid and carried me through wonderful teaching were you inspired by thoughts of crime and crime writing at that time Oh, that was a spare time thing, yes. Now, one of the times I was severely punished for some monstrous offence, like creeping out around the town at night and chalking up things on walls or something like that. I've forgotten what now. I did tend to do this, get out through windows and rampage around. Uh, a PE master who disliked me very much decided that as a punishment I should stand in a dormitory facing a wall for every minute of my spare time for a week. And I persuaded a day boy to nip down to town and he bought and buy me some books. And he bought me uh, Edgar Lustgarten's famous trials. And I could stand facing the wall with this book hidden in my waist to disappear under my blazer if a prefect or a master came in. And I read these Edgar Lustgarten famous trials and realized that rather than wasting time on horror comics, there were books all over the public libraries about people who had bits of their wives buried in the kitchen. That was so much naughtier than anything I'd ever done. I was turned on to that at once. That's where it began. That's where it began, <laughs> yes. I've been described now as a sort of new age Edgar Lustgarten. I because... saw that reference, yes, <laughs> with regard to your uh, late night broadcasts in London, I think. That's right, murder after midnight every week. Back to Cornwall for a to moment. To Cornwall, yes. Uh, you left uh, Truro School. Yes. Around about the late 50s? Uh, 1958. I went briefly to America, uh, did a semester at a Methodist liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. I remain very grateful for the weight of Methodism in my upbringing, although I'm not a Methodist. There's a, uh, a certain type of self-discipline and integrity which I think was very useful to be exposed to. Then I came back and went like everybody else to Oxford and that was marvellous because it was a total freedom, total academic freedom. Choose what you wanted to work on, concentrate on your own chosen areas of the syllabus. And, uh, and then I taught there for three years uh, after I'd graduated and taken my postgraduate degree. Beautiful place, beautiful city, but um, I was getting awfully pretentious. Mm -hmm. People said, you must be a very brilliant young man to have this job. And I was starting to feel I was, so I knew it was time to get out. Where, where did you go? <laughs> I went from there to Leeds. Now, that, uh, if I may use language they would forbid me to use uh, on LBC Radio in London, was hell on wheels. I mean, a big, <laughs> dreadful industrial city in it's the Different north. from Oxford, sir. Oh, goodness me, the filth, the soot, the smoke, all these people who sound as if they're shouting at you all the time. It, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. And uh, a huge department, stayed there long enough to work out how that worked, taught another year in America, and then went out to the West Indies for 10 years. Ah, why the West Indies? Ah, why does anybody go to the West Indies? Broken marriage. <laughs> oh, dear. Why does anybody come back? Another broken marriage. <laughs> I've heard that said before in island life. Yes. Yes. What did you, <laughs> you didn't seem inclined to put your roots down for long, it seems to be. Ooh. Ah, don't say things like that. Oxford, now I've uprooted from completely. Though while I was in Leeds, I used to come back and teach summer schools there every summer and felt very close to it. Now I feel, no, it's not a place I belong to. 
Uh, Leeds, I never felt I belonged to. West Penwith, believe me, I belong to. Now, I wouldn't say Cornwall. Tis foreign up in Lou. Don't know what they're like up there at all. But West Penwith. Not a land, yes. No, West Penwith, I belong to. And Barbados, oh, that was a very important ten years. And I belong there. In uh, My son goes out regularly. And whenever he comes back, he says, they're still saying, when are you coming back? Well, it's got to wait until I've seen my aged mother into the grave, towards which she is not racing, as one might have expected, but keeps slowing down her pace of rushing towards it and crawling there. We can say good morning to her in Haymore. You could say good morning to her in Haymore. In fact, like Sandy Powell it was, couldn't it? One could say, can you hear me, mother? Yes. <laughs> I know she's there. I spoke to her on the telephone last night. Lovely sounding lady, yes. Oh, yes, of course, we didn't get in till nearly midnight last night, driving down from Kent and Brighton. I was staying with my brother yesterday. He's working in Kent. Peripatetic as you are. Can we evoke pictures of the West Indies, though, now? Oh, yes. Well, when people said, what am I doing in Barbados? I would say, do you know a place more like Penzance than Bridgetown that also has a university? And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. The climate, of course, is perfect. The society is wonderfully culturally integrated. It, it's a place where we think of West Indians in London as criminal and dealing in drugs and so on. In a sense, this is because we've become such a private society that the united socialization of people that happens in the West Indies can't happen over here. And West Indians who are, by and large, intensely respectable, really rather conservative people, are getting no help with handling their children. A good example I heard a social worker give. She was visiting the West Indies to see what the basis is out there. She saw a child steal a mango in the market, and a strange man going by saw him, slapped him and said, put it back. And the child's mother came over and thanked the man. Now, I don't slap children myself, but the principle that the whole of society says, yes, we correct your child if oh. it's getting into bad social habits is one we've lost. We don't see that here, do we? We don't. Music from the West Indies. Music from the West Indies, the Desperados Steel Orchestra, one of the biggest and finest steel orchestras, playing the Bach to Carter and Fugue, and this is a sound I go mad for.
Not quite the Takata and Fugue, was it? No, indeed it wasn't. The gramophone libraries failed you again. <laughs> Don't leave me this way, is the title. Sorry about that, but a note from the BBC gramophone library, largest in the world, you'll understand, says, this is all we've got from the Desperados. Yes. So it's nice, nice sound anyway, wasn't it? Yes. From the West Indies, where you were back in, when was that, the 60s? Oh, 1973 to 1983. Oh, 83, oh, yes. Then you left the academic world in 83. Yes. Then I came back and, uh, well, I had published a number of books and I thought, I can live on this. And uh, my agent said to me, if you go on trying to write on poetry, let alone theology, you're not going to eat. So I took up the interest I had developed standing in Dormitory 5 in Truro School, reading Edgar Lustgarten <laughs> under my blazer, and wrote Murder Guide to London, because as a Cornishman, I knew all these famous addresses, Hildrop Crescent, where Crippen was, Tollington uh, Park, where Seddon was, Jack the Ripper in Whitechapel. I'd never seen them. I wanted to know what they were like. So I went round and looked at them. It's terrible the way they pull down murder sites. When I first researched it, you could come out of Gloucester Road Underground Station, go across the road, look down the area into the basement window where John George Haig dissolved the entire McSwan family in acid. Now it's been sold to a fast food and they've filled in the area and you can't see anything. Why should they want to get rid of a place like that? My goodness. Terrible. Here's a wonderful historical site and it's gone. We don't do that with our megaliths in Cornwall. <laughs> well, not quite the same connotation there. Is that how you beca became involved with guided walks around London? That followed from Jack the Ripper. After I'd done the murder guide to London, the next book I wrote was Jack the Ripper. And I was checking whether Colin Wilson's new book on Jack the Ripper had come out. He co-authored one with Robin O'Dell in a big bookshop in London. I saw a man pawing over mine, clearly thinking of buying it. And I said, if you buy that, I'll sign it for you. Do anything to sell books. And he said, did you write it? Come and have a drink with me and I'll tell you why. He ran a guided walks company. He had to do Jack the Ripper walks because people want them. And he didn't like doing them. He didn't know much about it. He knew he'd realized my book was serious and that they wouldn't get fiction. So I began doing guided walks in London, starting with Jack the Ripper. In fact, through 1988, I went up and did them every week. Now I've cut back right down, and I do about one a month. Still do them, though? Still do them when I go up, yes. Do you have to do them late at night? Do them at night. I have done late night walks, but normally you do them while uh, tourists can arrive on the underground and get home on the underground. Yes. Goodness knows how they feel at the end of a Jack the Ripper or guided walk in those areas. Excited. They have heard the history. They, they have heard what they know is the truth. And usually they really enjoy it. The guided walks are a very, very good way of seeing London. Many Americans, I imagine. Yes, approximately 60% Americans, and then about 20% English, 20 30% uh, English, and a few others. On Jack the Ripper, one finds that Mediterraneans don't come. You see very few French, very few Italians, a lot of Germans, a lot of Scandinavians. You mentioned that uh, some of the sites have been pulled down, have been removed. Yes. But many must be still there, or as near as makes no matter. Well, in Jack the Ripper's case, we're down to the place where he dropped half the apron of one of his victims that he'd cut off and used to wipe his hands and his knife with. And that is the only 
actual definite Jack the Ripper building which is left. But the pub he probably drank at is still there. It was called the Princess Alice in his day, and we know that the chief suspect was said to hang around there watching the prostitutes on the street opposite. Oddly enough, you still can. It is still a beat, and they're working the car trade, and I can often point that out quietly to tourists as they go by. Mm. And then another pub, the Ten Bells in Spitalfields, where his last victim was drinking on the last night of her life. Actually, I was up there last week introducing... Uh, to the press a new video which a company has made about Jack the Ripper and introducing Michael Winner who narrates part of it and who turned up for them as well. I feel another piece of music coming on. Right, it takes us back to the West Indies. The last movement of a Mozart quintet with the manuscript form which I used to introduce my radio work in Barbados. Right, I hope this is the right one from so the BBC Library. Thinks this man knows his music only too well. <laughs> Let me see if we can correct the track that we're playing here on this record because I have a feeling the real one is. Nods of approval, yes. Thank <laughs> you. 
Manuscript last movement of the Mozart String Quintet in D major, K593. Did you say it introduced a program of yours once? It did indeed. I used to use that as the introductory music for all my radio work in Barbados. Right. Away from radio work, we could talk about television work just about all around the world, it seems to me. Let's get back to your other books. Right. Oh, we could mention Dickens, Oscar Wilde, Kipling, Shakespeare, and, uh, of course, the, the new book, that heavy one, which I said we were going to ah, offer, as a, yes. offer as a prize. Tell me about the book, first of all. Yes. Well, we call it, you call it heavy, and that's in its weight, but it's yes. light and entertaining to read. Certainly. Uh, you race through these uh, gutter press style headlines and photographs and I had enormous fun with this book as people who've read it have realized because it starts from 1800 and I used a heavy Victorian tone and was very moralistic in my observations then and as we get down to the present day I get more and more like newspapers I won't name in case yeah, anybody felt it was offended but it gets lighter and more startling and you have headlines which I enjoyed like Orgiast aristocrats shooting excites planter society. It's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Kiwi farmer shoots six before being shot. Mm. Uh, man says he killed blackmailing prostitute unwittingly. <laughs> Can I can I ask you um, three questions? Maybe prompted by Certainly. the prompted by the book. Who sold her victims fat as dripping? Ah, uh, Kate Webster. Kate Webster, a uh, housemaid in the eighteen nineties, lost her temper with her employer, killed her, uh, then cut her up, boiled the flesh down in the copper to put it in a trunk and throw in the Thames, which she did. But out of it came some dripping, which she took round and sold Lovely. in Richmond. Uh, I think we're talking about a different person when we ask who sold his minced wife as sausages. Yes, that was a butcher in Chicago in the uh, 1890s. Now, he had a German name, which I can't remember offhand. There are, of course, hundreds of cases dealt with in this. Uh, it began with H, something like Heuchner, but that is wrong. And uh, he did actually rather reduce the market for sausages in Chicago when they learned he'd put his wife through the machine. Not at all surprised. Put me off, I must say. Well, Christie's in here as well, of course. What did Christie collect in a tobacco tin? I dread to ask. You well might. Uh, he collect... I suppose you do want the answer. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that I do, because I honestly don't know what's coming. <laughs> well, he collected hair from the private parts of ladies 
right. just in a tobacco tin. I was afraid. You did ask. I did try to stop you. I was afraid something like that was coming. I'd love to see you on Mastermind, you know, answering questions. Alas, on Mastermind, I should be too slow. I'm aged. I'm over 50. Things don't come quickly to me. I'd be one of those sitting there saying, uh, 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 pass. We've got the Yorkshire Ripper. We've got Burke and Hare, of course, and uh, Nielsen. Which crime from that book tingles your spine most? Tingles my spine most. Always my great favourite is Daniel Good, the 1840s coachman who uh, hid his mistress's torso in a stable. He was disposing of the body bit by bit. And then the silly fellow stole a pair of breeches from a pawnbroker's shop. And the policeman came round to ask about this and searched the stables and said, what's this? Is, is it a goose? And Daniel Good raced out of the stables and disappeared. And the policeman said, no, it's not a goose, it's a sheep. And picked up this woman's torso. Ultimately, that was returned for burial. And instead of burying it, the steward of the estate creosoted it, put it up in the stable and charged people sixpence a time to come and look at it. This is better than any fiction, isn't it? Oh, far better. Far better. You couldn't make up what real murderers do. What sort of mind, Martin Fido, do you need to be a ferreter of crime facts such as these? Uh, a scholarly one to look out the facts, undoubtedly. And um, uh, in the end, I mean, they don't shock. Uh, you, you start reading them out of a morbid curiosity. I think you must have a very unmorbid mind, in fact, and not find that things of horror... Uh, startle you in any way. You must accept that everybody is going to die. I am going to die. Uh, it is very... Other things than the actual deaths distress me about murders. The Chronicles of Crime is the title of your latest book. And I think people will find it fun. We're offering it now. We have a question. Yes, we have a question. The Chronicles of Crime covers the Wild West, as well as gangsters, vice racketeers, murderers, uh, white slavers and assorted villains. So, looking in the Wild West, who was, by what name would you normally know, Henry Antrim? You might know him as William Henry Bonney. Uh, what name would you really know when you thought of Henry Antrim? We're inviting your answers to this on a postcard, please. And uh, let's call it Chronicles of Crime quiz. BBC Radio Cornwall, Phoenix Wharf, Truro. Let's have them in by one week today. Martin Fido, despite your globe-trotting, you're very much connected with Cornwall. I know you love Cornwall. Coming back home to Haymoor as often as you can. You're home there staying with your mother now. What about Cornwall? How does it fascinate you and how does it fit into the Martin Fido style of life? Well, I live here. I've always lived here, well, have 10 years out in the West Indies and other years, but now I've been living here for the last seven years, basically. And in addition to walking tours, I sometimes courier coach tours. The first one I took was featured in a novel called Missing Susan by Sharon McCrum. I am caricatured as the last pirate of Penzance, the rackety and lascivious tour guide Rowan Rover, and I brought them down to Cornwall. And I showed them Roach, made them climb up it. Americans were astounded. Roach because, Rock. Yes, up Roach Rock, because 
uh, they would never dare do it at home for fear of negligence suits if one of them fell off. And we're bringing another group down next year, we hope. Sharon McCrum, the whodunit writer, and I will bring a group down to see romance and mystery and folklore of the West Country and Cornwall. We should come through Dartmoor, we should go over Bodmore. Took a group last year up to the Cheese Ring, and uh, we lo- I love bringing them down around here. The ancient sites, unlike some of the sites in London you wish were still there, are still here. Indeed they are. When I take people to the Cleopatra's Needle in London, I say, well, this is the oldest thing you can see in London. It's 4,000 years old. If I want to see something 4,000 years old, I look at the road outside my house, which is one of the old Iron Age roads coming down to bring the tin and copper from uh, over by Sancreed Beacon for sale at St. Michael's Mount to the Phoenicians. In London, they had to steal it from... Egypt to get something really old. That's a little modern local village as far as I'm concerned. Here's the real old stuff. Martin Fido, thank you for being our guest this morning. Your last piece of music now. Thank you, Chris. You got it wrong again, didn't you? I asked for the Cavatina from Beethoven's uh, B uh, uh, Quartet in B and the record library sent you down the wrong set of quartets. The first instead of the last quartets. So instead of going for the most beautiful piece of music, let's just likely hear how Beethoven began composing quartets in the quartet in F major, opus 18, number one. And that was Martin Fido on BBC Radio Cornwall on the 11th of November, 1993. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find nearly 200 roundtable discussions, author interviews, archive recordings, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian true crime. If you have any comments or questions about our podcast releases, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast.